Anderson, the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. First episode of 2022, Sandos and the Sidekick, Jay along shortly. My name is Mike Gallagher. Thank you so much for joining us. This is, geez, year number four or five, calendar year number four or five. I'm not really quite sure, but uh, we're in the middle of season four and episode like 250-something. To me, with every year comes a rejuvenation, some more life, some more energy. Jay Sandos walks in looking very rejuvenated, looking very nice in actual dress clothes, which is a rarity for Jay today. That's because today we are uh, doing our media blitz that we do with every new coach. And uh, George Quarles is the new football coach for ETSU. Uh, We're going to talk with him, actually, in about 10 or so minutes. But first, we're going to just talk about kind of our general thoughts. We didn't, Jay, go through the whole process really blow by blow with people simply because, you know, holiday hit and uh, we typically will run into the studio as quick as we possibly can to cut an emergency podcast. This is who the head football coach is. Uh, rapid reaction. We didn't do that because I was headed back to Minnesota when it was announced, and we were like 36 hours from Christmas, and so didn't have the chance to do that. Uh, but I guess this is kind of what segment one is for. Also, a little bit later, we're going to catch everyone up on Southern Conference men's basketball, everything we can at least, because a bunch of the teams still haven't played yet. And then bold predictions for – I think it was the last version of 2021, what seems like forever ago. But um, welcome. Happy 2022. Happy holidays. Happy everything. It's good to be in dress clothes. Is it? I don't know. I don't think you've ever said that. uh, No, I've never said that. I was in a jumpsuit yesterday, felt great, and then um, almost forgot about Media Blitz because of just when the hiring and everything took place was just, you know, and you can't dictate some of that, but this is something we've done with every coach since I've been here is, you know, try to do a sit-down, get a little in-depth, get a little more than just the pleasantry of I'm so happy to be here type deal and, you know, just have a conversation and and come from it from, you know, a little bit of the fan perspective and what they want to know. And, you know, some coaches will give you more than others, but it was odd just the right before Christmas because I remember people saying, you know, it was after the women's basketball game, the noon tip, and, hey, you guys going to be over there? And I'm like, you know, I've already my car is packed. Like we are, yeah. we are leaving to go to my sister's, and so I'm like, there's, I got, I got no shot of doing that. And so, even getting simple things done like the WXSM liners and other things that we would already have done at this point is two, three weeks down the road. So, just the timing of it was difficult. Um, I think Buck Nation is finally over my uh, trolling of them on social media. There's a few. It took Bucky Stutters a long you time to hope. get over. He was so. I did one of those uh, newfangled, whatever it's called, Twitter thing, speak or whatever, so you can – and uh, and uh, he, he let me know uh, very quickly that he was unhappy with me after the Georgia game. Even after the buzzer beater, I thought, okay, people are going to be excited. Um, no, he let me know how much he was still unhappy with me and, and all of that. And so, Good. Speak your mind. That did, get, that did get a little out of control on me. Um, I knew I did some good work when um, Matt Wilgen's daughter, Carly, was – hammering him on what do I know and he was like he's literally told you that he doesn't know this is the deal like he is there so I knew I'd, I'd done some good work and bad work at, at the same time but um you know we like we talked about before the hiring we you know we don't really get insight now this was a name that we had thrown out there we had guessed and due to previous relationships knew it was a possibility from all things I've heard it was a, a two-horse race um you know the Jeff Fisher thing was was real I contend that it was sort of a package deal. He wanted to bring a son with him, be the defense coordinator. 
handed over. ETSU wasn't comfortable with that. They weren't paying for the son. They were paying for Coach Jeff Fisher. Jeff Fisher, I don't think, was in it to win it. I think he was in it to help his kid, and I, I commend that. But in the same token, I think ETSU made the right decision to be like, no, we're not going down that road. Um, you know, I think because the hire was made at a certain time frame, there were certain guys that were, you know, probably just took themselves off the list or, or weren't able, you know, because they're still in the playoffs or bowl games or whatever their status may be. And eventually we may know everybody they talked to. And I know there were head co- current head coaches that they had talked to that they're not going to release because obviously they don't want to break confidence in the jobs that those guys have. So there were a lot of people, as you would imagine, came out of the woodwork. Um, around the area, I think the higher – you know, has been perceived as a good hire. Um, I think there are some diehard Billy Taylor people that are obviously disappointed. Um, I think, obviously, Billy Taylor was disappointed. And, you know, that wound, we'll see how that plays out over the next little bit. And, you know, if there's the most buck guy you've ever had, he's been in every defensive meeting since January 15th, 97. Wow. There's not been a defensive meeting on the campus of East TSU since January 15th, I need to let that sink in for a second. So, um, I, 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 it'd be curious to see how George Gores does. I'm going to talk to him about staff. I'm going to talk to him about everybody wants to know about the offense. Um, I did hear one interview that he did with our good buddy Kevin Marshall at FCS Radio Nation. He did state on there no flex bone, and then that was more Coach Hendricks coming from Air Force, and he desperately wanted that in the system and had to be a part of it. Coach will not be running flex bone. I've been asked that a lot. There will be some option elements, he said. Um, you know, they definitely want to try to throw the football. They want to run the football. They want to spread people out. Uh, you know, will they change tempos? All that. I, I don't know. We, we will we will see when I talk to him today. I'm sure you've got other questions you'll talk to, or some may be similar. Well, no, I think it's interesting because you and me often come at interviews from different perspectives, don't really consult each other, which I think is the fun part because exactly. people will get one thing when they listen to yours and they'll get another one when they listen to mine here in about 10 minutes or whatever it is. I'm going to talk to more about the journey. Uh, I think, as you said, come at it from kind of a fan perspective on the simple fact of, wow, you know, like incredible high school career. I think some would say that it is pretty quick to ascend from high school head coach to FCS head coach, quarterfinal, you know, participant, and now you're taking that program over in just really five years. I mean, 2016 to 2021, like that is a very, very um, quick rise. Uh, And so, you know, how you plan on bringing some of that experience from your high school head coaching days to – where you're at now and how you think there are going to be, you know, obstacles, how you navigate those, differences, so on and so forth. Um, I do have to give you credit because early on you said, and I don't think we harped on it a whole lot. We didn't harp on a whole lot of names at all. But, you know, you say, I don't really know anything, all this, but one of the first names you floated out there was George Quarles. And so I think we have to take everything with a grain of salt from Jay Sandoz because he says, I don't know much, but then one of the first names that you said, boom, hired. I know nothing. Oh. <laughs> I know nothing. That's all I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you want out of me. It, it was pretty incredible to see how everything unfolded. And I think where there's 100% truth to all the stuff that we say is that we're not flies on the wall in these rooms. Right? Th- that's what people have to know is, like, we're not in on the hiring process. We're not in on the phone calls. We're not in the room when things are going down. And so to that extent, there is absolutely – no falsity being put out there. But it is pretty incredible to see that one of the first names that you said is this guy. Now, some would say, I think you would probably say, well, I'm you know putting two and two together here. Look at the history, knowing Scott Carter 
and kind of his relationship with George Quarles and his feelings about George Quarles going into the search. I think you had to figure that he was going to be talked to. Um, whether he was going to come out with the job, I think that was, and I think that's why we maybe just touched on it a little bit, right? Because there was no clear front runner, quote unquote. I think if there was, you'd probably say it was Billy Taylor. And I say this term not to denigrate Billy because I'm one of those big Billy Taylor people that is like, wow, I really wanted Billy Taylor, right? Because I think he deserves it. I think he's earned it. I think he's bucked through and through. I think he's a great coach. He's a great guy, so on and so forth. Um, but I think just by default, he was the front runner simply because there was no real other outside candidate that you looked and said, oh my gosh, how could they not hire him? Now, you know me, I'm never going to be satisfied unless the hire was DeMarco Murray, Jason Witten, or Philip Rivers. Never going to be satisfied. And I say that semi-satirically. I hope it does come out one day that we do hear all the names that were interviewed, that were talked to, and whatever the reaction was on the other end of the phone, the call was made from someone here that said, hey, look, Jason, back home. We know you want to get into coaching. This is a nice big jump early. Family here. You know, you could spark your career. Or if DeMarco Murray, it's, uh, hey, look, you know, we saw what is going on down at, you know, Jackson State in terms of hiring a big-name guy. Player, everybody knows him. He's having tons of success. We think you can have that same impact, relate to the kids, come in. You've got more coaching experience at a higher level than Deion Sanders does. So come in, be the guy that, you know, can kind of run the program from that big top-down kind of CEO-type mix. Um, you come in, you're the heavy hitter that's like, hey, DeMarco Murray, all right, Cowboys running back, you know, it's pretty good. And you can close the deal, but you also got some coaching chops to you. And then Phillip Rivers, you know, for the area would be great, you know, faith, family, the whole thing. Um, and again, NC State grad. Yeah, and another big recognizable name, right? So I, I, I say it semi-satirically. I don't think, uh, obviously, I was ever expecting any of those people to be hired. Uh, but I, I hope that they had those conversations because – Coaching searches are different now. I think this one probably unfolded more normally than some others do, um, even with the Jeff Fisher rumors that were out there um, and the conversations that were, uh, were had. Um, but as you see coaching searches go forward, I think this one is going to look a little bit more – I don't say this to knock the process, but antiquated – Right, because there, there's not the, um, the huge giant names, the former players, those type of things. Um, the, the and that's a disadvantage to not having football. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when you don't have football, and I, I, I talked to this with a few fans, like, man, I wish there's more ETSU guys in the mix. I'm like, well, you didn't play for Sure. You know, some of the names, I mean, some of the, the guys, that's Marcus Satterfield, who's the offense coordinator at South Carolina, Chris Beatty, who played in the 80s. Is, is, I mean, you, there's a few – you know, Mark Collins is in the NFL. He actually was on Mike Smith's staff for quite a bit, who was a linebacker in the mid-'90s when I was in school. There's a few guys, but there's not – when you have a gap 12 years, there's guys that don't coach. They don't get in there. You can't – the young guys aren't ready, you know. Uh, the, Corey Colder's not going to go from running back coach at Davidson to the – right, so there's not there, there's not anybody that, that's ready-made. You have to go back to guys that played in the 90s, but there's a gap there where – you can't get this. If this happens, you know, 10, 15 years, now you're, you've got a chance. There's more football being played. There's more guys getting coaching. There's more. You can do sort of find somebody that's in the family, if you will. And ETSU, for the most part, though, that's not been their MO. It, it, in, in most hires, at most positions, and name a sport, pick one, there's just not 
a lot of ETSU's had great success. If you look at all, you know, the the sports that they've had, and non ETSU grads that have gotten the jobs. And so I, I don't know. That doesn't mean that it's not going to work out, and that's something that can't change and and get the cult. And maybe with the winning culture. And part of that issue is because ETSU football, if you look over the long haul, has not had a winning culture and has not had – I mean, you're still talking about the first ever Southern Conference win uh, or conference championship, I should, uh, should say, that's not shared was this season. I mean, you're talking about a lot of firsts. So if you can continue to build on that and go, then, yes, I certainly think you can. And, and you make a great point because I'm not just talking about the big names from outside that are, you know, one-in-a-million type hires like, a, you know, Jason Blitner or Phil Burns. But, yeah, you're right, guys on the inside that have gone on – to coach elsewhere and seem like, you know, on the rise, hot names, that whole thing. And you could argue that Jeff Fisher was a little bit that guy, I suppose. He, he, cer- he certainly has a name he that, was, it, right. that nationally people went, what? But that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the uh, Eddie George of Tennessee State, right? Like the influencer-type individuals that maybe aren't – or we don't know if they're the greatest football coaches or not yet because they're not really coaches, they're – Players that have excelled at the highest levels that you can bring in, and people be like, "Oh my gosh!" And they can sit down with a kid, and the kid can just be floored. Like, I dreamed about this person talking to me and wanting me, and now I can go do it. All respect to Jeff Fisher. He's a little bit older, right? Uh, wasn't a player at the time that these kids would have known, and I think the name doesn't really resonate with that generation. So I'm talking more about, like you said, it's either the big name. Uh, from my side, things either the big name of someone nationally that has been on TV and everybody knows um, that's got that name recognition, or yeah, it's someone in your program that is on the rise and wants to come back and, and give to the program um, and be around ETSU and be that guy. And I think Billy Taylor was that, but again, he's not that age of a you know 35, 40, 45. Um, and it's not a knock to Billy. I, I think Billy would have been a great hire, um, but it's not that type of candidate that I'm talking. That being said, um, I'm excited to talk to George Quarles, get to know George Quarles. Everyone seems to uh, have good things to say. I mean, and that's the thing. And I think one of the big things that you needed to see was when the person's hired, is there a flood to the transfer portal? Are there more guys that are like, this guy, I don't think so. After you have those conversations. And apparently he's talked, texted or talked, to every single person on the roster. And so the fact that he's done that, reached out, and there's not a ton more names in the portal, I think is a really good sign. I think there two two things play out into that. I think one is the staff has still not been named as of yet. So I think guys are kind of sitting and waiting, and I think they want to meet their position coaches. Um, I think the second thing of that is they've not gone through any practices or workouts. Sure, or that's fair. So I think w- the ultimate fallout or what not be a fallout would be once you get through spring practice. The initial not jumping off the ship, if you will, is very encouraging because when the in-house guy doesn't get it, there generally is the initial. So exactly, I, you have a great point there that stage one has been successfully. If you were to put a you know just a uh, three things on a board, put check mark or an X by, you put a check mark by you know section one has been covered. Section two will be when the staff hires, when the guys meet. If there's still not a lot of guys going, all right, check mark two. And you get through spring practice, that would be number three. So I think that's all going to be important. The other thing is, I think, depending on what happens with the coordinators being hired, would the entire defense stay if 
each issue, you could pull, I don't want to call it a coup, but if they pull something where they work something out with Coach Taylor to stay, which would be huge, I think, for, oh, I'm not a fan base. Will they still be mad? I think so, but it would be a great bridge. But also the defensive players that are loyal to Coach Taylor that lobby for Coach Taylor. So would Donovan Manuel come back? Would, you know, other guys stay that might be leaning a certain way? You know, depending on who's on the offensive staff, you know, who will he retain on that side? That's really his his puppy, um, his offense. That's what they brought him in to do is offense. So it'll be curious how that all transpires. But, yes, that everyone hasn't set the place on fire and ran away is huge. Not to say it can't happen. That's right. And, and again, this, there's still things to go. So, you know, it's one of those where – Yes, you have avoided the first problem, but I also don't want to give false hope of like, hey, there's still, depending on how this shakes out, if 20 guys go in, I don't want everybody to freak out either. And this is one of those things, like after Shea resigned and there's a hire made with Desmond Oliver, there was still a divide. There was an, even last night at the coaches' show, there are two grown men arguing over, this is a great hire, it's a terrible hire. And I'm sitting there, and they're looking at me, and they're looking at poor Doc Sander, and he had nothing to do with it. He's... And I'm looking at both of them, and I'm like, guys, this is just like the basketball. And I talked to both of them after basketball. At some point in time, there's a hire, and he's our guy, and we're bucks, and we're moving forward. Yes, there can be hurt. Yes, there can be this, that, and other. Yes, there can be that. Yes, you can be all in. You can be not all in. I don't care. At some point, he's the guy. He's our guy. We have to all move forward to, to get things going. And so I was able to kind of like cooler heads prevail, but – it was similar to, to basketball, uh, as far as that goes. Is half the people were on board, half people weren't on board. It was a bunch of same thing. I'm like, all right, Coach Coral, it, it's been decided. He is your head coach. Who his staff is, don't know yet. Hopefully, he'll tell us here in a little bit. We'll see what's going on. But moving forward, like he's our guy, so we need to move forward with it. We need to get past that. We need to figure out, you know, what is the recruiting plan? What is the coaching plan? You know, what What are things going to do? How is he going to be different? Is he going to be the same? What, what's he going to change? There's a lot of things um, that go with that. And all that said, whenever you get a new coach, it's, it's exciting to see, you know, what's going to happen. And, and for the most part, he's taken over different programs than what we saw six, seven months ago with basketball. You know, obviously he made a change in women's basketball because the, the wins and losses weren't there. The men's basketball is a whole separate thing that we don't have to relive, but they're – it was still a winning basketball team on the men's side. So this is a championship team on the football side, which Coach Corral has openly said, uh, I've broken the cardinal rule when you take over a program. You want to take one that, that needs to be, you know, it's slightly down, you need to fix something or help it get whatever, not take over an 11-win team that just did everything new that you can do. That's, that's not what you want to do. So it, his challenge is there. The cupboard's not bare. There's a lot of expectations he's going to walk into, you know, the – the crowd, the 10,000 is going to be there. Now, Coach Corals is going to bring certain things where he can get in the door with high school coaches. And that's going to be great in the state of Tennessee. Some of the best players on ETSU's roster, though, is Georgia, Florida. You know, can they keep Gary Downs, who has a pipeline to those schools? You know, Mike Rader has some connections down in Alabama. Billy Taylor brought in all the Ohio kids. So can those key pieces stay and continue that? Or can he find guys who have ties in those areas? I mean, all that stuff, I think, you know, I'm going to kind of 
see what I can get out of him. I'm sure he's going to coach speak me in first thing. You know, first conversations usually with me aren't aren't the greatest with coaches. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what to, you know, what we're going to get out of them. But we'll we'll try our best, and we're going to give the video interview will be up you know later today or tomorrow. The podcast will be up here. You know, we'll get all this recorded, and so you'll be able to, to fend for yourself. But Coach Corals is our coach. We're excited to have him. And, um, you know, we can't wait for spring practice to kind of see what everything shakes out. And, you know, it's been a long time since we've had so much football talk, positivity, you know, other than maybe when it was coming back. Of course, we didn't have podcasting. But other than it coming back, this is about the, the highest level of football. Even 2018, I felt like, didn't carry this much momentum that we have into – January into a new year that we've been able to talk about. So uh, stoked to have this conversation, stoked to, to hear your conversation. Because, again, we, we don't discuss this. I'll have my conversation, you'll have yours, and we'll be able to listen to both of them and probably learn stuff as, as you guys, uh, our listeners, are. So uh, that's our football sort of ramble for the morning. Now we're going to transition into little basketball, Southern Conference Hoops, right after this timeout, San Diego sidekick on the back of Air Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. the breakdown one of our favorite bumpers just because i think uh, mike liked me singing the breakdown or whatever i was doing at that point that being said let's break it down george quarrels along in about uh well after this segment i don't know how long the segment's going to be because we again it's incredible thinking about january the fact that southern conference men's basketball play has started we haven't talked a ton of basketball previous years and you can go back and listen to the shows i mean mid-november we were pretty much Diving in head first, but that's the beauty of having a team that goes to the do, FCS quarterfinal. Do you know what I hate about beating Georgia? Is every time we beat Georgia, it's always bad timing to cover it. So when we beat Georgia in Hawaii, the game ended at 5.30 a.m. Eastern. And by the time we played the next game, it was another news cycle. So oh. it missed a news cycle. Nobody knew it happened. Oh. Then we beat Georgia again on a buzzer beater, and we get a new football coach the very next day, and then it's Christmas break, and then by the time we come back, it's conference play. So, so whatever reason, it, it, you, you just beat Georgia. It's no big deal, but it never gets any coverage because I guess it's Georgia. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just it's because it's Georgia. That being said, all right, you go. I Unfortunately, just, I just wanted to say that. that Georgia game also is buried by now a Chattanooga loss uh, by 30 points. So I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've already, that, not, that was 2021. I've already buried We're not going to talk a ton about the individual games and so on and so forth. This is just to look around the league as we do – Preseason, we go through our preseason polls, we look at rosters, we look at outlook, the whole thing. Uh, we try to do that same thing once conference play starts, team-by-team team breakdown in the Southern Conference. So let's start with Chattanooga. They were needing, coming into this year, to remedy some issues on the interior. They decided, of course, to go get Silvio DeSosa and 6'11", 250-pound Avery Diggs from UCF. 
In the offseason, they lost Alex Tostado, Mark Tikahenko, Trey Dumas, Prosper Obidi-Dubi, and Stefan Kenich. Uh, Tikahenko, Tostado, Dumas, Obidi-Dubi played in a combined 15 games during the spring. Kenich really the only big loss of note, third on the team in scoring, team leader in blocks. Names we know that are back Malachi Smith, David Jean-Baptiste, Darius Banks, those being three of the top four scorers, uh, role players and part-time starters, Casey Hankton, Jamal Walker, and, of course, your favorite, uh, A.J. Caldwell, heck of a guy, uh, back as well. And they have not disappointed with all of that, plus their additions. They're currently number 31 in the net, 11-3 and three overall. Their only loss is to Murray State, who have just two losses themselves this year. Belmont, who have lost just three games. Maybe their only one they wish they had back, College of Charleston, who are 8-5, and five, a two-point loss. But... Other than that, and as we alluded to, ETSU knows this all too well. Chattanooga has been pretty flawless this year. Yeah, they're pretty good. And I think it's a good, perfect storm on the transfers that they've gotten in. I think Lamont Paris probably deserves credit for pivoting after his first couple of years in which it was, I'm going to build Wisconsin way and four-year guys and you know, we're the right way we're going to build and go and all that, and it's just college basketball's changed. And, and even at that level, college basketball has changed forever and so you just cannot do it that way and I think he's done a nice job of getting the first key piece which is David Jean Baptiste who's been there for six years uh, who put his name in transfer portal last year and still was able to retain so give him credit for that and then he's added just the right transfers that kind of fit the system a couple South Alabama guys then you look at was it uh, Presbyterian look at another one uh, Southern Illinois something other some other schools in Kansas Right, you throw, throw all those, and then they've been able to really be able to create the system and to watch their inside out and ball movement. And I hate to even this sounds like blasphemy to even say, but it looked a lot like the ETSU thirty and fourteen, mm. uh, just the way that they moved it, the way they shared it, the way different guys are able to make shots. That you know, the, yes, they have the big three. Yes, they had guys that score more twenty point games than that, but they have guys that are capable of throwing double digits on the board at any moment, such as A.J. Caldwell in the last game, but Darius Banks can throw. So there's a lot of guys that can score. It makes it difficult. They have just enough inside-out play, and DeSos is a game-changer. I mean, there's a reason why he was a five-star recruit that went to a blue blood, and you bring him down a level, and ETSU having not many guys in the five, and it was tough for them, but I think they're going to be a tough out, and I think Chattanooga proved in the – off, not the offseason, because that's the wrong word, during the non-conference season, that they were pretty worthy. Two tough road losses at Belmont and Murray State. And other than that, they had rolled through people, and we'll see how the next few weeks progress. But right now they're playing at a high level. I picked them to win the league. My number two is ETSU. Of course, all the headlines on this team were that there was a mass exodus, whole coaching staff gone, 11 of the 17 off that team from last year. But much like Chattanooga, three of the team's top four scorers back, both Brewers, along with David Sloan. The big loss, of course, coming into the year, Damari Monsanto, but the Bucks brought in Jordan King, who seems to have proven to be a better shooter than Damari Monsanto was last year, and that's saying something because Monsanto is lights out for a lot of the season. Along with the six returners, um, we talk about the five, and then Charlie Weber, of course, uh, Mohab Yasser, uh, King, Cordell Charles, and Jaden Seymour, the Wichita State transfer. They've taken the four other spots in the once 10-man rotation, so Weber, Patterson, and the big four, uh, quote-unquote, um, along with uh, those four uh, newcomers. Um, 
10-man rotation that it once was, now you lose Silas Adeke, of course. And if you're listening to this around the conference, this is something that maybe could fly under the radar, but Silas Adeke uh, no longer with uh, ETSU. Uh, then you lose Charlie Weber going down with an ankle injury, and you heard um, Mark Bielkowski last night with you on the ETS Radio Coaches Show say, he's got to be 100% before he comes back. We're not going to chance it. We're not going to go out there 80-85% just to get a win here and there. Like He's got to be 100%. We're going to play the long game with him. So that ankle injury has kept him out a couple of weeks already. Inconsistent results, partially, I think, because of that thin front line without a decade and without Weber. Lately, do have, of course, the Power 5 win over Georgia, but then the holiday break maybe catches up with ETSU. Uh, Chattanooga's just really, really good. N- not sure what happened in that eight-day period, but you beat Georgia, then you come back, and you have, uh, you tie your biggest loss to a conference team in the last eight years, 30 points, 82 to 52 to show. Yeah, you know, and and the overreact, is it right? Did you overreact when ETSU beat Georgia? Also, did you overreact when ETSU lost to Chad? I think, obviously, there were some things going against ETSU. I think when Seymour got his fourth foul, Jaden Seymour, and there was really no post-player's let, I mean, talking Ty Brewer went play the five at that point. There was a little bit of a deflation I think you could feel, at least for me, but I felt from ETSU and the bench and everything. So I think obviously ETSU, A, will be a little bit more at strength when they play Chattanooga, but how they bounce back, you know. ETSU lost to Furman, right, was it 91-61 or something close to that. And then I think it was three weeks later they won by about 30. So – they were able to avenge. So the question is, can ETSU be able to bounce back? They're going to get tested, and I know we're not going to talk a lot about individual games, but the very next game for ETSU coming up tomorrow against VMI, I think is going to be a good barometer for how the Bucks react to that loss at Chattanooga. Does Chattanooga beat you a couple times, right? We heard Randy Sanders say that after ETSU lost to Chad football. The problem is, is Chad going to beat you twice, or are you done with it and you move on? Obviously, football is able to move on. Can ETSU move on and be able to hold serve? at home, and that would be the big thing. If you're going to win conference championships, right, or you're going to contend for one, you have to win your home games, and ETSU is going to rattle off three in a row, we think, um, with VMI, then, what is that, Wofford, and then Western Carolina. Furman was my number three in the preseason poll. I think we rightfully had some concerns about the Paladins this year because Noah Gurley transferred to Alabama, Claymont's graduated, so rather than a one-two punch like they've had really ever since Bobby Ritchie took over for Nico Medved, it was Devin Sibley and Matt Rafferty. Then it was Rafferty, Mounts, and Jordan Lyons, a three-headed monster. Then it was Rafferty, Mounts, and Gurley. Then last year, Bothwell, Gurley, and Mounts, uh, they only returned Bothwell from their top three scorers because of that transfer of Gurley. We wondered if Alex Hunter, last time we did this kind of thing, could be that part of a big scoring trio or duo, or would it take him too far from what he did best, that being playing the true point as he does so well? Was it Jalen Slauson's time? Could it be... Garrett Heen or Jalen Pugh or their lone transfer grad student Conley Garrison, who was a prize 91 transfer. And really those first two that we mentioned, Hunter and Slauson joining Bothwell, that's been the three-man attack, and the offense hasn't missed a beat, averaging 80 per game. But I thought there was cause for concern if it was going to be Slauson, Hunter, and Bothwell, and with a 9-6 and six record, 1-1 one one in the league after losing to VMI in their last game. I still think that there's cause for concern. Uh, they do have a win over Louisville, plus a couple of other close Power 5 losses and it was a gruesome non-conference schedule. I'm not sure, though, I'm totally sold yet. And maybe that VMI loss is playing too heavily in my head. I did watch a good 30 minutes of that game, 30 game minutes of that contest, and VMI just looked like 
the better team, and Furman at times offensively looked very unimpressive. Now that goes directly in contrast to their stats. I mean, 80 points per game in the non-conference schedule that they played. They are a good offensive team. Um, but VMI did some things to them that frustrated them for sure. Yeah, and v- well, VMI is interesting, and we're going to get to that in a second. But Noah Gurley's loss I thought would be much tougher, I think, for them to swallow. But it, so far, overall, I'd say it has not been. And I think that's a, that's a credit to everything. And I know <clears throat> Furman was lacking Coach Ritchie, and I don't know how much that plays into it. He, Him and his wife were expecting a third child actually on that day. And so, obviously, a family man, and, uh, you know, I commend him for that, choosing family over basketball, right? It's one conference game. That means a lot. So, um, I'll be curious to see. I think Alex Hunter trying to score more has been interesting. I think when you look at the – and we all know my uh, love of Alex Hunter, so – uh, but being able to see him try to score more, and he's the team's leading scorer. I didn't know, honestly, I'd never – I thought if you were told me Alex Hunter's going to be the team's leading scorer, I would have thought it's going to be a bad year for Furman because I think Alex does so many other good things. But how was he going to be able to manage the offense and continue to score? I think Slauson has been the surprise as his minutes the last two years have come up. He's one of the tops uh, as far as steals in the conference goes. And to do that from a post position, a five-man position, I think is impressive. And Bothwell can certainly throw up big numbers. I think the other sneaky guy that's been able to score more that I would have bet would not be able to score has been Joe Anderson, the backup. And honestly, he looked in over his skis a lot last year. And if Joe Anderson can continue to spell Marcus Hunter, or even they play together some on the floor, but if Joe Anderson can continue to score, then I think – you know, Furman, Furman's going to be there because I think the way they have a nice system, I think they play their five best guys as much as humanly possible. I know I've harped on why that's bad at the end of the year, and I still think Furman is going to be one of the top three or four teams in the regular season, and I still think, because they've not changed the way they do things, they are going to be bounced out of the Southern Conference Tournament pretty early. That's my gut feeling on Furman, so I don't think you need to panic on VMI. I think they're still going to be a top three or four team. Wofford, I had number four in the preseason poll. The way I felt about Furman was really only magnified by the way I felt about the Terriers. The big loss from last year's team, of course, Storm Murphy. Trey Hollowell, not a small one either. Now at Moorhead State, who we saw earlier this year. Nick Pringle and Zion Richardson, the third and fourth of four to depart. Non-factors, really, last year. But Murphy and Hollowell were the team's top two scorers. And without any of the trio of guys they had come to rely on over the years in Murphy, Nathan Hoover, and Fletcher McGee around for really the first time in recent memory. The big question was who was going to fill the void. We speculated it could be Max Klesman, Morgan Safford, maybe an increased role for B.J. Mack. But we hit on two of those three. Klesman averaging 15.5 per game. Mack has doubled his scoring from last season. He's second on the team in points per game. And we kind of wrote off Ryan Larson in our conversation offensively because he's been tattooed into such a consistent role there, solid not spectacular on the offensive end, not providing a ton in that way, but he stepped up this year just short of double figures in scoring. One thing we couldn't have foreseen, and this may be the biggest injury in the league so far this year, but Messiah Jones, yeah, no doubt. their ultra-efficient interior threat, torn Achilles back at the end of November out for the year. Sam Godwin has filled his role a bit, but they are lacking, and we know this as ETSU lacks some depth in the front court. Wofford kind of in that same boat. You know, B.J. Mack lost some weight, and I think it's helped his game. I think he got a little more um, in shape. I, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say, right, since I'm out of shape. But um, I think they wanted B.J. to lose some weight. They want him to play more minutes. They want him to do more things. Plus, he's a guy that can step out and shoot uh, the basketball from three. And so I think 
they needed a little bit more out of him, and I think he's answered the bell, right? He went and lost weight. Now he's averaging 14 points per contest. We knew what Max Klezman could do. I agree Messiah Jones right now is the biggest injury in the league, bar none, because even though he's undersized, he just does th- – for ETSU fans who like Kevin Tiggs, he, he's like that. He's a really a powerful – I know he plays some five, but he's really a guy that should be a wing at 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", but he's just savvy enough to play in the post and has enough post moves that he can frustrate people, and he has a great knack for rebounding. So I think that's a huge loss. I think – Getting Bigelow back was going to be huge for them. And, yes, he's averaging close to double figures, but I thought he would be the guy that maybe would step up as the big scorer. And again, he's averaging close to double figures, so it's not like he's not scored. I really thought he would be the one to step up and score in, instead of – or actually take really shots away from Larson. But if both those guys can average 10, B.J. Mack can continue to play there. Godwin gives you good minutes. They're going to be there. I think McCauley, again, has done a good job of the system. I think Messiah Jones over the long haul is going to cost them two or three games. I think it probably cost them the game against VMI. Um, if they don't win coming up against Chattanooga to start 0-2 at home, I think there could be some alarm bells ringing for Wofford fans. Mercer was my number five, super high in the Bears last year. This year wasn't as optimistic because a ton's out the door. Leon Ayers the third transfer to Duquesne. Jeff Gary, Drew Thomas, Mitch Prendergast, Patrick Gurry, uh, Ross Cummings. Yeah, that's a big one. And then, of course, my favorite, Magic Bender, who they actually took off the roster before the end of last year. Cummings and Ayers were two of the team's top three scorers, two of their best three shooters as well. I think Cummings, you'd say, was kind of the glue to that team, even though he wasn't their best player uh, for a couple of those years. Their best player from last year is back, still probably my favorite player in the league outside of maybe Ladarius Brewer, Neftali Alvarez, running point. Felipe Hase has had a big open to the year. He's also back, multi-talented, leading rebounder and best returning shooter from last year. I mentioned coming into the year, I thought the most intriguing addition for the Bears and one of the more intriguing additions in the league on his unofficially fourth school in 18 months was Jalen Johnson, their lone transfer in, and he's proven to be that behind only Hase on the team and scoring, finally realizing the potential I think many had seen in him over the years. And when we talked about the Bears earlier this year, we also glossed over some role players that we thought may bump up their production, just mentioned them briefly, and they have. James Glisson and Kamar Robertson, both averaging over eight points per game, being relative bystanders, at least comparatively, last year. But this year they've stepped up. Glisson has been especially impressive, shooting 50% from the floor, 88% from the line, fourth on the team in scoring and second in rebounding. Put a scare into Arkansas the first night of the season. Since, I guess you'd say, some ups and downs, not a lot that stands out, bless you, uh, but it is good to see Jalen Johnson, again, having been kind of a journeyman, uh, step in and fill a scoring role along with Hase and Alvarez. That's a pretty dynamic three. So a guy that was at Tennessee was committed to go to ETSU, then went with Steve Forbes to Wake Forest, realized he couldn't play at Tennessee or Wake Forest, probably should have been at ETSU, and now he's at Mercer. That's uh, right. that's the, the long of the short of Jalen Johnson. and. Again, proving that going down a level can do wonders for guys. Um, you know, he only averaged, I think, four points at Wake Forest. Um, like he averaged, le- I was going to say, he was yeah. less than that at Tennessee. So um, I, he's found a nice home. I think Mercer's the one of the bigger question marks I had coming into the league. I had the middle of the pack, and so far I think that's about where they're going to be. They're having a little trouble with depth. I think that's um, – and you mentioned a lot of the names that left, and that's certainly it. But for Coach Gary, I think he does an outstanding job. I think he's brought in talent. Uh, he certainly got big-name talent 
to step down, and they've been able, like Hossie from South Carolina, Alvarez, they've been able to step in, Jalen Johnson. So they've got a nice three, four piece, five, I guess, if Kamar Roberts, you want to include him, five guys that can go. But other than that, it's a huge drop-off. And Hase is one of those guys that he's going to live outside. They really don't have a big post presence, and I think that's the one thing that possibly could hurt uh, Mercer because that's the one thing that they did have with uh, Batafudo, with Bender, all the other guys. They had guys that could go inside and get points. And not that Hase can't score, but over 50% of his shots made are beyond the arc. You know, he's only attempted 32 free throws for the post player. So I, I, I feel like that's going to be the issue for the Mercer Bears. Um, that being said, ETSU hasn't beat Coach Gary uh, inside Freedom Hall yet, so they're going to have to figure that out. The uh, other, I think, biggest injury you talk about in the conference, and we mentioned uh, obviously losing someone for the season to Messiah Jones, I think that's more we're talking about. The biggest injury in the conference right now that's not going to be back is Messiah Jones. Now, Natalie Alvarez hasn't played in a month, and so that's going to be a big, big problem if he's not able to return. I haven't heard an outlook on him, and so if that is a season ending, that immediately bumps Messiah Jones to two for me because Natalie Alvarez is – uh, kind of their lifeblood, everything that they do, he needs to be involved in, he kind of makes go. And so if he's not able to get back on the court very soon, uh, that would bump Mercer from, what, fifth on my list to probably seventh or eighth because he is uh, tremendous. So keep an eye on that because, again, it's been since December 6th since he's played. UNCG was my number six. Um, even though their turnover resembled ETSU's a lot, I had them down here because I think quality-wise what they lost was – greater than what ETSU did. Of course, we know Isaiah Miller gone, but former head coach Wes Miller took A.J. McGinnis and Hayden Koval with him to Cincinnati. McGinnis, their best shooter last year. Koval, of course, the interior rim protector and one of the best to ever do that in NCAA history. Angelo Allegri went to Eastern Washington, another top shooter on the team also gone. Derrico Williams, um, their first top 150 recruit in program history. Jared Hensley also followed Wes Miller to Cincinnati. Ryan Tankowitz and Michael Hewitt Jr. gone. Two of their top three scorers did return. Keyshawn Langley and Caleb Hunter back. Their leading rebounder, Muhammad Abdul Salam, too. They got in Dante Tracy and the NEC Tournament MVP at Robert Morris last year, 6'5", 245-pound uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Leading scorer, Jalen White, as well. So uh, the MVP from the NEC Tournament, Tracy, and then the Corpus Christi leading scorer, Jalen White. And their new coach, Mike Jones, definitely has some promise, potential, a great record. I just didn't think it would all come together this year, and so far we don't know much, honestly. Kind of like we don't know much about Mercer. They're 7-6, and six, haven't played a league game. UNCG, I'm not sure we know much either. They won some tight games early, their first four by 14 combined points against kind of so-so competition, and they're 500 since, splitting their next eight, haven't played a league game yet. So uh, much to my surprise, Tracy and White have been contributors only at times. The man I didn't bring up, but you actually did in our conversation last time, Demonte Buckingham has been the scorer, rebounder, everything really, grad transfer from Cal State Bakersfield. And I didn't think I'd say this at any point after he averaged a point per game last year, but Baz Leda is their second-leading scorer and rebounder, 6'10", Dutch forward. So it's kind of been those two, and then you mix in Abdul Salam and Hunter and uh, the Langleys and Tracy and White. Um, Not a flashy team, certainly. They are beating teams up on the glass, but outside of that, I'm not sure there's anything that stood out, and I don't know what to expect from this team. I think it's interesting that the Langleys have switched, where Keyshawn Langley was really the guy you had to worry about of the Langley twins, and now – it's Kobe Langley, so a different style coach, different style game. Mike Jones, traditionally a defensive guy, had that success at Radford. And then you bring in Ron Jershis as lead assistant, who all ETSU do is beat Ron Jershis, no matter if he was at Marshall or Ohio or anywhere else. So I feel pretty good about ETSU chances uh, with Jershis. But still, 
I, I don't know. You look at their results, it's, it's, it's also equally shrug-worthy because, you know, they win some games. You're like, okay, that's a good win. And then they lose a couple, and you're going, eh, I don't know about that. The one thing, only, only one I can compare, there's two you can compare. They beat North Carolina A&T in a four-point game at home, and then they lost to Tennessee by 40, 76-36. Only had Pretty 36. But if you look at their scoring, other than the UMass overtime game, and your buddy, Matty McCall, uh, that's the only game really they, they've been able to score a lot against a Division One team. I mean, 80 against North Carolina Wesleyan, but you look at all the other points, 57, 70 in overtime, 55, 60, 90 in overtime, 71 in overtime, 80 against a non-D1, 54, 74 against Elon, 36 against Tennessee, 64, 62. I mean, defense and just a slugfest and rebounding and muck it up is going to be the game. Now, they are one of the best in the nation at rebounding, averaging 40 boards per game. They really clean up the glass. They're almost plus – or they are plus 11 for the season. I mean, to get plus four or five is impressive. To get plus 11 is a different animal. So, they do a great job of defense rebounding. They want to keep the game low scoring. So if you can get them up and down and get them going, that's obviously going to be the problem. And you only have one guy in double figures this late in the season, Division One level. I think that's a problem. But it's also the style of game that they want to play. So uh, they're great at getting a free throw line, great at defense, great at rebounding. So the MO's out there right now. I don't know if that's what Coach Jones would be moving forward at UNCG. He was a defensive-minded guy at Radford, but obviously they had more pieces that can score there. You probably are wondering, where's VMI? Well, I had them seventh, and you and I have dove pretty deep into this squad, prepping for tomorrow's game at Freedom Hall, Bucks Key Dets, 630 pregame, Buccaneers Sports Network. Coming into the year, the problem, once again, for the Key Dets is that they saw their leading score transfer out third year in a row. It was Bubba Parham, 2018-19, Travis Evie, 2019-20, and now Greg Parham from last season. Also, Miles Lewis, gone. He was kind of their do-everything, hold-it-together glue guy. Tragen Fall also left. Tavon Bond graduated, Caleb Moss gone too. Really the big losses there, Parham and Lewis. There are other three starters back, Sean Conway, tremendous center Jake Stevens, and Camden Kerfman. So that was a plus for them. And what's been an even bigger plus has been the play of Kerfman. I think there was some wonder there if he could be the lead guard with the list we just mentioned coming before him and pushing him to kind of that second option in the backcourt. But he's been great, 18 points per game, 42% from beyond the arc. 47% 47% from the floor. He and Stevens both having big years. Conway has moved into a more prominent position as well, starting again, but scoring more. Trey Bonham, we don't really talk about a lot, but an all-freshman guard uh, that last season uh, really had a strong open to his career at the collegiate level and is having another good season this year. They've got wins over Wofford and Furman already, and my main criticism of Dan Earl has been his teams don't win on the road, but after just 10 wins away from Lexington in his first six years, Six years, so that's like less than two wins a year. He's already got three this season. Well, you hate Dan Earl. I that's love it. Dan Earl. He's a great guy. <laughs> so, I, boy, they have been two impressive wins to start the year. And I think you really got to start with that, the fact that they've been able to um, go on the road and win at Wofford, which we all know that, that I think that's pretty tough. That's not a normal thing that people go do. And then – at home against Furman. So you're taking two of the top four teams that you're able to play against and be able to, you know, pick up two wins to start the season. I think that is eye-opening. Then if they were to go to ETSU and win, I think, you know, three of the top four teams that most people had 
listed to start the season, you're really going to do some things for VMI and the thought process um, around Coach Earl and what he's been able to do with all the things you mentioned that he keeps losing his leading scores. I think it's interesting to see the transition that Jake Stevens has turned into the Matt Rafferty of the SOCON, where if you remember Matt Rafferty led almost like third in the league in assists um, from the five position. Well, now you're looking at 47 assists for Jake Stevens as one of the tops in the Southern Conference, and the offense kind of runs through the big man. Second thing is Caden Kerfman, who uh, Mark Belkowski, I don't, I don't remember if we said it on air, we are talking before, actually had Kerfman committed to Maryland to be a preferred walk-on. One of his buddies uh, is on the staff at VMI, said, hey, what can we do? Is there anything I can do to get Kerfman to, to come to us? We desperately need a guard and a shooter. And basically the conversation with Belkowski was offer him a scholarship. Right. If you give him a scholarship, he's a walk-on for us. I'm sure he'll take it. And we're not going to tell a kid, hey, don't come to us if you get a full ride because you're a preferred walk-on. So now, last night he's sweating it out going, is this the guy that's going to end up costing me because uh, <laughs> years down the road I'm at ETSU and this man's averaging 18 points a game. Same thing BMI's done last couple of years. They're third in three-point attempts per contest. Nationally. They're tied for first nationally in makes per game at 12.8. It's who they are. There's two games all season they've not made ten or more threes. One was seven against the Gardner-Webb, and I think the other one was Presbyterian. And they're one and one in those games. But they're going to shoot threes. They've got, I think it was 48% of their points are from beyond the arc. Um, that's including two-pointers and, and free throws when you add up all their points. So it, it's they're going to take 43-point attempts per contest. You take that many, and they're, they're shooting it at, what, 38 37%. I mean, they're going to make 12, 13 threes. I mean, just taking that many volume. So the question is, what are teams going to do? Are they going to try to take away the three-point shot and dare them to shoot layups, or are they just going to say, fine, just try to hit 20 and beat us? I, I don't know, but if they win Wednesday, you're talking about making some real noise in the Southern Conference with wins, two of them on the road against Wofford, ETSU, and a home win against Furman. Citadel holders of the preseason SOCOM player of the year, Hayden Brown, they did lose two of their top three scorers from last season, Fletcher A.B. and Caden Rice. Rice transferring to Georgetown. The only other gone, Derek Webster Jr. So Hayden Brown back. Tyler Moff found another year since it was a COVID season. He's back running the point. Stephen Clark back. Rudy Fitzgibbons, Brett Davis, pretty much all of their role players. Just the big losses being Rice and A.B. So how do you replace all those points? Because they did score a lot of them last year. Well, they've done a lot of that with Jason Roach, 6'5", freshman from Berkeley out in California, dropping 14 points per game. And for a team that likes to take as many threes as they do, he's really been the only one to make uh, more than 15 on the team this year. The only one to consistently step up from beyond the arc. He's 42 of 100 from outside, making almost four per night. Pretty much just a spot-up shooter, but he's filling that role well, albeit for a team that turned some heads night one by beating Pittsburgh, but since has had some bad losses and even fewer Division One wins to show for their year-to-date. I think that first night there was a lot of stuff that went on for the SoCon and around the country where people were like, whoa, what is happening here? But Citadel has kind of regressed to more what we thought. Yes, and I think the style of system is, is going to be those. They're going to be able to pick up some wins. They're going to be able to lose. It's going to go with Hayden Brown. Um, and what a huge win for them to just kind of kick off the college basketball season. And, again, was it six wins versus power fives, five teams. Sanford has two, which we'll get to in a second. But 
Citadel, I think, is picked about and will be exactly where they're going to be. They'll be in the, the 7, 10, 8, 9 game when it comes down to the Southern Conference Tournament. Um, I think it just depends on how good Hayden Brown is, how good they'll be. Western Carolina, the team with the most turnover in the league, which was a league full of tons of turnover last year. Mason Faulkner, Corey Hightower, Xavier Cork, Matt Halverson, Cameron Gibson, all gone. Former head coach Mark Prosser looked around, saw it was a sinking ship, popped over to Winthrop to take the head coaching job there. He's had his ups and downs in year one for the Eagles. Uh, more left when he did. Sincere McMahon, Kendi Miles, Douglas Elks, Daniel Ransom, Marcus Thomas, Amir Langley, and Tyler McGee. I counted four players back. From that team, Travion McRae, Tyler Harris, Josh Massey, Brad Halverson, their top four scorers, top three rebounders, gone. And I looked yesterday, as a matter of fact, and McRae, who dropped 20 against Georgia, no longer on the roster. So I'm not sure if that uh, is just an aberration, mistake. usually isn't. Usually when you're taken off the roster, that probably is a sense of what's going on and that you're not going to be back on the roster at any point in the near future. So if he's gone, that obviously makes the returners down to three. Uh, that's a huge blow to their chances. He was their second-leading scorer behind Valpo grad transfer Nicholas Robinson. Fontarius Woolbright from Lawson State Community College. Uh, freshman Marcus Banks right there with him as well. I do have to give credit to Justin Gray. I thought this would be an unmitigated disaster, like a total train wreck in year one because of so much turnover and just the fact that Western was already bad with all the players that they had last year. And it was a very, very talented group that they had last year, but they pulled off some tight wins, been competitive in really every game except Eastern Carolina. They were down like 26 at the half, and then Gardner-Webb, uh, a big loss there too. Um, they'll still be around the bottom of the league, I think, but at 6-7, and seven, I don't think Catamount fans can nitpick too much. No, and they gave Wake Forest fits. I talked to Coach Forbes after that game to get a scouting report, and his quote to me was, I don't know if Western's going to win a lot of games in Southern Conference. He goes, but I've been around SoCon for a while. I think you'll value my opinion. And I said, of course I will. And he said, they're going to be a problem. He said, they're going to create some problems that are going to be issues for teams. I'm most excited about uh, Joe Petrinkus because it's going to be a battle of roommates. His roommate at Kansas State was David Sloan for two years. So uh, those guys are going to be able to go at it. Uh, but I think they've done a great job. Uh, Coach Graves, a, a Wake Forest alum, has done a great job of piecing together the roster. And I would have said beginning of the year, I don't think they would win six games when yeah. I looked at their roster. And they've already got six wins. So um, I think he could be – it'll be one of those sneaky things where if he won 15 games, I would say book it, Coach of the Year. I don't know <laughs> if it'll work that way. But I, he, they've surpassed anything I thought they would be. Not seen him in league play. Obviously, losing McCray is going to be, a, I think, a huge blow considering he was their second-leading scorer. He was their second-leading assist man. He was first in steals. Me and you were high on him and couldn't figure out how come he didn't play um, as much. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how the roster shakes out. But for Western Carolina fans, I think they should be excited for what Coach Gray's done already and, and will, I'm assuming, continue to get them better. Sanford, I had them 10th. And yeah, you did. through the non-conference, I got to say, I was scratching my head. I was scratching other parts of my body. I don't know. I don't I know where you're going. You, just, I was very you need a moment? Like, do I need to leave? I don't okay. know. Um, the most confusing team in the SoCon, uh, not just in terms of who gets play in minutes and how many that they do play in their rotation or whatever it is, but with the results they're getting. As a refresher, they lost Tristan Chambers, Preston Parks, Luke Champion, Jalen Dupree, Stanley Henderson, Christian Guess, Myron Gordon. The only two to average more than 10 points per game were Gordon and Guess. 
So head coach Bucky McMillan lost quality, replaced it with quantity. Usually that doesn't work out great. Preseason, the roster was 20, and apparently no one's quit, which is more than Bucky can say for last season. Last year, they actually did do some things well, despite what I would make you think, of course. They had the league lead in rebounding margin, were fourth in the league in scoring, but they gave up almost 80 points per game. We're second to last in the league in three-point shooting and free-throw shooting, and they couldn't defend the arc either. They're doing some things well this year, though, as well, uh, so much so that they picked up, as you talked about a few minutes ago, two Power 5 wins in the non-conference and ten non-conference wins overall, tied with Chattanooga for the most in the league. But then they promptly score 49 points against Furman in their league opener and get blown out by 32. Now, you do have to qualify that by saying maybe the best player in the league, certainly the best newcomer to the league, consensus three-star recruit down at Florida, Quez Glover, did not play in that game. His 19 points per game certainly would have helped. I'm not sure if it would have been able to flip the deficit completely, but it definitely would have helped. Others in double figures are six foot six, 225-pound Akron transfer Jermaine Marshall and Florida Southwestern Community College transfer Jaden Campbell. And get this, Jay Sandoz. Most shocking thing to me when I looked at him. There's only nine guys playing double-digit minutes this year instead of 13 like last year. Is Buckyball figuring out not only the rotation, but how to coach at the collegiate level and how to get results from his guys, or is that first conference game going to be more what this team is? No, I think I think he's probably figured it out. I think when you look at their schedule, and it's easy to knock a lot of their games. You're looking at Alabama State, Alabama A&M, Kennesaw State, teams that are traditionally terrible. They played three ones But then you look at two huge right wins at Oregon State, at Ole Miss, and then honestly, you look at their losses. At San Francisco, who's one of the best mid-major teams in America right now. Matter of fact, they scheduled a game with Little Chicago because both their opponents lost, and they said, you know what? You're a great mid-major. I'm a great mid-major. Why don't we go ahead and meet in Salt Lake City, Utah, and play a game and try to help both our RPIs? So they're getting it done in like two days' notice, playing at a junior college gym, which is my favorite story I found yesterday. But San Francisco is an outstanding team. They lose at Belmont, which we all know what Belmont is. And they, they bested Chattanooga by about the same margin that they beat Sanford. And then the last game is Furman, and you're right. How does that – how do you weigh that? Is it because Glover was gone and it just kind of threw everything off and he's just a vital part of their success right now? Or was it just one of those games? Was it you – know, that will be the question mark. How do they respond the next couple of games in the league play, I think, will dictate? Because we have seen other teams – that have had great success in non-conference and then just did not translate for whatever reason in the league. And I guess their next game coming up, Mercer, we'll see how that goes. Then Western, then Wofford, ETSU. But I'm curious to see the Bulldogs, and I'm curious to see for Mercer. That's going to be an interesting matchup for me. I'm curious, was Glover the reason? Right. And I realize, yes, they lost by like 40. He's only scoring 20. That's half. But – I think it's more than that, right? If you lose a leader, you lose a guy that makes everything work, you know, I think that can be a bigger loss than just the points per game that he is there. So I'm not quite sure what to make of Sanford because you look at some of their schedule and they're going, you know, me, Mike Gallagher, and a bag of Skittles could have five wins on that schedule, six wins maybe. And then you're talking about, well, then they won Smith. And then you look at their losses and you're going, well, is there a bad loss on their schedule? No, not really. I mean, again, two – quality mid-major losses and then one of the teams picked third to finish in your own league so I, I'll be curious to see what Sanford did they, them and VMI are the biggest I'm not sure what to think about um, 
where they're going to be. Are they really this good? And give both coaches credit and both rosters credit, or will things come crashing down and they'll be middle to lower third of the pack when it's all said and done? Well, you know, I had them tenth. So if they finish middle or lower third, they're still probably outperforming. I still had them over Western, <laughs> and I'm not sure about Western. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, honestly. So, I mean, some of the, again, I think it proves how good the Southern Conference the league has been for seven, eight years, and coaches have been able to move on and take higher-level jobs. Players have been able to go to higher levels, but in the same token, you're as good as the bottom of the league, and the bottom of the league has proven to be very tough right now. I'm excited to see how the next seven weeks play out, and I just hope there's a lot of games played so we don't have – you remember last year, I mean, it ranged anywhere from 11 games up to only one team playing the entire slate. That was UNCG, and, of course, they ended up winning the league, so – if we can avoid that at all costs, you look right now and we're a weekend and there's four teams that haven't played again. And so that's obviously been frustrating, COVID running rampant, but uh, if we can stay away from that and teams can stay healthy, like, this is going to be a really fun league season, really fun. I still think I am of the opinion that Chattanooga is a little bit head and shoulders above the rest at the moment, and then I've got nine teams that I feel like could figure – two to five in a lot of ways, and then six to ten in a lot of ways, and then even some of those teams from six to ten could bump up. And you could finish the standings in tons of different orders. Uh, I, I have really no idea. So, as you mentioned, the parity in this league is a lot of fun. Well, what else is running rampant is that itch. you got to go scratch. You can't figure out where it's at. So why don't you do that, and you come back, you can talk to head coach George Corls. We'll talk ETSU football, the new head football coach with Mike Gallagher for this time out, San Jose Sidekick on the Wagoneer Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Three first show of the new year, and no better way to ring it in than with the new head of ETSU football, George Quarles. Uh, the next ETSU football coach, perhaps the greatest high school football coach in the history of the sport at that level. 250 wins in 266 attempts at Maryville High School. 74 consecutive wins, the longest streak in the country at that time. The winningest high school coach in America from 2007 to 2016. A TSSAA Hall of Famer, a Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame inductee as well. And since leaving Maryville, he returned to his collegiate alma mater, Furman, for five years as associate head coach, working mainly with quarterbacks and the offense as a whole as the offensive coordinator the last four seasons. Now he takes the reins of an ETSU team coming off an FCS quarterfinal appearance, perhaps the Bucks' greatest season in program history. The expectations are high, and George Quarles steps in, hoping to meet those expectations. Coach Quarles, welcome. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Great to have you on the show. And firstly, I'd just love to hear your impressions of the situation you're walking into, and I'll expand on this in a moment. But it certainly isn't a normal first head coaching job in the fact that the expectations here are very high. No doubt. Uh, I've broken the rule of uh, taking over a job. You want to take over a job that may not be quite at its peak. 
And uh, clearly, you know, last season was the greatest season in ETSU football history. And, uh, you know, a lot of players back. Um, it's kind of a unique situation in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's one that I'm really excited about. Uh, you know, you always said you wanted to coach at a place where it matters. And, you know, this is a place where it mattered. You know, when we came here or they came to, to Furman when I was there, you know, always great fan support. Um, you know, it's always a very well-coached team. They were solid on defense. And so this is a, a great opportunity. Um, I I kind of understand what I'm getting into a little bit, but but I'm really hopeful that we can build on, you know, what's, what happened last year and uh, continue that upward trajectory. To me, it would be rather intimidating as someone in my first head coaching job. We talked about the unprecedented year in many ways. The threshold here higher for success than many other places. So does your approach change, or, or are you kind of shaping that approach as it goes along? Are you leaning on anyone in particular to try and help you mold that approach? Um, or are you just saying, look, I've had success as a head coach before, so I'm just going to follow what I've done regardless of situation? You know, I think a lot of every everything you mentioned, uh, you know, it's it's kind of learn as you go just a little bit. But, you know, the I think as a coach, you're always putting pressure on yourself, whether you know, you got every player back on the team or you got no player back. And like I said, this is a unique situation. Um, it's, you know, a program that was dead and then they brought it back to life and where, you know, Coach Sanders has taken it, you know, and where it's heading, you know, we just want to continue to do do what they were doing and, uh, you know, hope to keep a large part of the staff, you know, not quite ready to announce that stuff yet. You're not going to break any news? Yeah, you totally could yeah, right now, Coach. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I will say this. You know, I, Billy Taylor is going to stay, which is huge uh, for me and I think for East Tennessee State. Um, you know, he has tons of credibility. He's an ETSU alum. He's always put out great defenses. You know, so that was a huge hire uh, for me personally and I think for our program. And uh, he's been awesome. You know, we've met some the last few days and just going over the roster, looking at needs, and, you know, and there's always needs. There's always concerns on your roster. But I think the good thing is you've got a lot of guys in this on this team that have played quite a few snaps. Now, you're losing some good players, um, but it's – like I said, there's a lot of them. It's a pretty young group, a lot of freshmen, redshirt freshmen on the roster. So that's, that's exciting. Um, you know, we just have to do a good job of continuing to develop, um, whether it's – you know, in the off season, in the weight room, speed and agility, all those things, and then get a chance to coach them 15 days in spring practice, and then get ready for the fall. But you know, I think everything here is set up for success, and that's exciting. Because that is a new piece of information that you just said about Billy and keeping him. Um, just expound on that a bit, if you can. What went into that? Uh, obviously, he's incredibly successful sure. at this level. He's well-respected around here. It seems like a win-win on every possible avenue. Well, I thought so. It was, you know, that was re a really important piece for me, you know. And uh, I remember talking to these guys about this job. You know, I, you know, I, I told them, you know, Billy Taylor needs to be a big part of this. And uh, like I said, he's – you know, he's just done this for a long time, understands our league. You know, he obviously understands these players, um, you know, and hopefully we can keep the defensive staff together, you know, and we'll see about that, you know, that sort of thing. But that would be big if there's as much continuity as possible, you know, whether you're going to have some change regardless, you know, with the new head coach. But the least amount of change possible, I think, is the best situation.
Someone will look at your path, Coach, and like to talk about how you got here and say, wow, to go from high school head coach to FCS head coach in really five years, that's a lot of ground to cover. What do you think has most prepared you to make this kind of jump in such a short span? Or do you maybe come from a different school of thinking and say, this has felt really natural, and I think that this is the spot that I'm supposed to be in, the timing that I'm supposed to be in? You know, I really think that everything that's happened to me um, throughout my life and coaching career has kind of led me to this point. And I remember, you know, I, when I first made the jump to college as an assistant, you know, I think I I was ready. You know, I just sometimes you don't know if you're ready or not. And uh, after doing that for a while, you just realize at the end of the day it's still football. You know, it's still about blocking and tackling and, you know, trying to get kids to max out their potential, whatever that is, and being the best they can be. And, you know, you certainly have to have good schemes and on both sides of the ball. But I just think you've uh, you just got to really get guys that will buy in. And I think that's something that, you know, I've done okay at over the years and I'm going to continue to try to – that's going to be my approach, you know. And we've got – we'll have great coaches. Uh, we'll have an offensive and defense coordinator. And I want them to coach, you know, and I want to – I'll throw my two cents in every now and then, but I want them to, to be the head coach of the offense or head coach of the defense and, you know, and just let it go. And, uh, and like I said, there's enough players here. There's talent. I think we can have success for sure. Mentioned it in introducing you, one of, if not the greatest high school football coach ever. I mean, it may sound absurd because there's so many schools in so long a period of time, but you look at the credentials and it is pretty outrageous what you were able to accomplish in your time at Maryville. What do you anticipate being the major differences and major obstacles in terms of being a head coach, obviously at the high school level? There clearly weren't too many obstacles you couldn't overcome there versus being here at the FCS level with, as you mentioned, a program where there are very high expectations, but really just being high school coach to a college coach. Sure. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of things that uh, will come at you fast, I imagine. No question, and, and I'm not sitting here saying I have all the answers and uh, I'm going to make every call exactly right. Uh, but I do think, you know, just understanding uh, just the support that's around here, uh, whether it's the AD or the president, the fans, you know, I think I, I want to draw on that as much as possible. And, uh, and then, like I said, we've got a good staff or we will have a good staff. And just those guys letting them coach. Um, like I said, I've been in high school more than I've been in college. There's no denying that, uh, but I still think at the end of the day it's still football, and you know we can all draw up certain things on the board and you know and all those things. But you know there have been coaches that have made this jump, you know whether it's uh, Chad Morris or Gus Malzahn or whoever, you know that taking it way higher than this. But you know it's something that if you think about too much, it'll probably worry you a little bit. But if you just go with it and and just trust and and what you've been given and the situation we're in, you know, that's how I want to treat it. It's just, I just want to go coach. You said there's a lot of talent here, and unquestionably uh, still some going to be back. There is a lot that's going to be gone. Uh, Tyree Robinson, Carondel Lentz, you know, Trayvon Shorts, Quay Holmes, Donovan Manuel's in the portal right now. Not sure if that'll be something that sustains or if he's back at ETSU, but Blake Bockroth, Malik Murray, Jared Folks, we know they'll be gone as well. It may not be a lot of departures, but the quality of player that is in that group 
is upper echelon. When you look at the roster as it is now, you said you think there's a lot of talent on it. It does seem like a bit of an uphill battle to replace that kind of player in one offseason. Maybe there's not one right answer to this, but how do you go about doing that? Well, and I do think you're right, and I think the biggest loss you have with those players, they're obviously really good players, but the, their maturity, their age, they were all older guys who had played and had won, and you know, you're losing a lot of leadership. And the roster is, when you look at it, there's a lot of uh, freshmen, redshirt freshmen, you know, and people who've had the COVID year, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a young group. I think there's some talented players, you know, just talking with those defensive guys this morning. Uh, but clearly, you know, losing that leadership is, you know, I don't know how you replace that. I'd be, you know, I just don't think you're going to replace it right away. But just the understanding that, you know, it takes time, you know, and most of the – that's what we were talking about against North Dakota State. You're talking about playing an older team. They were old, you know, they're big and strong, and, you know, and they don't play many freshmen or many redshirt freshmen. They're all kind of old, and that's the point you want to get to. You know, I think this COVID thing has messed up rosters just a little bit, you know, because it didn't count. So that's why I think you're seeing so many rosters where it's freshmen, redshirt freshmen. You know, and I bet half the roster, if you look at it right now, is, is that way for us. And, uh, you know, that's something we got to address a little bit. I've never been a real huge fan of the portal, but if we have to go in the portal and get some guys, you know, to replace some guys, we'll do it. You know, they're out there. You just got to convince them. And I think if you can get them on campus here, there's a good chance they'll want to come here. Okay, Coach, knowing all the background in the Bucks that we do, the time of year it is and where you're coming from, um, I'm sure that the last week and a half has been kind of a whirlwind. I'm sure your to-do list is a mile and a half long. What is the most pressing area that you're looking at right now? Uh, because if it were me, and I get overwhelmed easily, but I would look at that list and say, I want to do it all now. I feel like it needs to get done now. And September would feel a lot closer than it is far away. What is the most pressing thing you're looking to accomplish and get done right now, knowing signing day is right around the corner, you got to have your staff, and there's a bunch of pieces that are yet to fall in place? Sure. You know, staff is obviously the first one, you know, and then a close second is going to be that recruiting piece. And, uh, you know, we just looking over the numbers, I don't think we're going to be able to sign a real big class. Um, it's probably in the neighborhood of five or six you know, in that neighborhood, which is very small. But that's what I'm talking about. The COVID year can kind of mess you up. You can get jammed up in your classes a little bit. So we've got to figure out how that's going to work. Um, but like I said, staff is going to be the first thing. Uh, getting Billy on board was huge. Uh, you know, I think I have an offense coordinator soon, and that'll be key. And then, like I said, we just got to get on the road recruiting. You know, I think we can go out a week from Thursday. I believe it's the first day we can go out, and we've got to get in front of people, and we got to get some some guys in here, and um, you know, and then official visit weekend I think is that following weekend. There will be three of those right now. So, like I said, there's a lot to do, and it is overwhelming. Uh, you know, just trying to make your list, and you know, and just check them off as qu you know as quick as you can. Uh, Scott Carter's been great about giving me lists and trying to check those off as well, uh, but it's. Everybody I've talked to, you know, other coaches, they said it'll get better. You know, it's overwhelming um, at the start, and I'm I'm trusting them. That made me feel better because, you know, Christmas was a blur. Uh, you know, just I, 
feel kind of bad for my family a little bit because all I did was talk on the phone or Zoom or, you know, and I was just somewhere else. And uh, so I'm looking forward to getting things in order and just getting in a routine. I think that will help more than anything. I'm a routine kind of guy. I like to know where I'm going to where I'm going to be each day and what I'm going to be doing. And when that happens, I think things will slow down just a little bit. I'm sure you'll get into a rhythm. Good luck checking off all of the myriad of lists that you've got lined up right now. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to ETSU. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Hey, Coach George Quarles, new ETSU football head man here on Santos on the Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Shohei Otani has taken the MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching the playoff with the rest of us. Bill McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Demario Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A six foot six, two hundred twenty-five pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the seventeen green to our left, the eighteen T, forty-five shot of right. Jay proceeds. To hit from the 18th to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. Still made the putt for far. It happened again, and I'm sure no one remembers any of our yeah. The one victory that neither yeah. of us got, and we don't really have to talk about the others, but you and me were jousting over who was going to get UCF in the UCF Florida Bowl game, Which was and I said, game. UCF is going to win. They're like seven point underdogs. UCF's going to win. You come in hot, and you say, they're going to win by a touchdown or more. And I think I write fully back off and say, you know what? That's hotter. That's bolder. Uh, you you deserve this bold prediction. You have gone bigger and better than what I was able to do, and they won by 12. I, I'm still going a little bit of shenanigans. I had backed off the other three. We've just we've had the same four times. The other three, I'll let you have it. No, 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 no. And no. you've that, lost all three. No, no well, it's, it's, either, it's either that or it's been, I think there's been a couple other times where I've been like, oh, okay, fine, you can have it. And you've won those two. I mean, this is like I the sixth it. or seventh this time, is, and like four or five of them have ended up in wins for you, which is big because now what, how, how you're bad 14 is this? and how 27, and I am 4 and 36. You have a double-digit lead in bold predictions. Now, we haven't made our bold predictions of the new year. What we're going to do Thursday we got to do our New Year's resolutions because those are always fun. So I'm excited for those. I don't know what the theme is going to be, but we'll come up with some of those. And it's New Year, new boldness in bold predictions. So I'm excited for that, too. Hopefully I can turn the page because down double digits has never happened in bold predictions history until now. In Fuego. Oh, I'm devastated. Well, this was a good show. It was. Good to hear from Coach Quarles. Appreciate him joining us. Good to share our thoughts. We had to wait a while for it, and, you know, men's basketball and women's basketball. We'll talk about Thursday in the same fashion we did men's basketball today. It's in full force now. It's here, conference season, one of our favorite times here. Don't forget, men's basketball Wednesday, women's basketball Thursday. Then when they got both playing on Saturday, we've got three of the four games on the Buccaneers Sports Network radio coverage. Back Thursday with another podcast. So, Santa's back in. Put that way.